One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Hello and welcome to The Real Story. I'm Ritala Shah. Migration, Brexit and a trade war with Washington. EU heads of state gather in Brussels for a summit that has plenty of challenges on the agenda, but little agreement on the solutions. Migration divides Europe between North and South and East and West. EU solidarity has been frayed and migration is straining the seams of government too, not least Angela Merkel's fragile coalition in Germany. Brexit appears to be making slow progress, but but the departure of the UK has crystallised the need for political reform, a point underscored by the rise of Eurosceptic anti-migrant governments in Hungary, Poland and now Italy too. And as if that wasn't enough to be going on with, underpinning all of this is the unresolved issues with the euro. Ever since the eurozone crisis, there have been calls for urgent economic reforms, but so far there's been little action. The French president Emmanuel Macron is taking the lead on vision, calling for a profound transformation of the EU, with a need to give Europe back to its citizens. But Germany's Chancellor Angela Merkel is cautious and cold on the big ideas, and smaller northern EU states want even less change. So what are the EU's options for reform, and how will member states sell change to their citizens? That's the real story this week. And I'm joined by Claire Jones, the Frankfurt correspondent of the Financial Times, Josef Janning, head of the Berlin office of the European Council on Foreign Relations, and with me here in London, John Springford, Deputy Director for the Centre for European Reform, and Paul Mason, a journalist, filmmaker and author. Welcome to you all. I've sketched out there some of the problems, but what is the future of the EU if there isn't reform? Josef Janning. Well, if there isn't a reform, I see the EU gradually eroding because I think agreement in such a heterogeneous environment depends on a successive story of at least moderate successes that will then trigger a certain momentum of continued cooperation. If that chain is broken, we will see more and more reduction to short-term national interests and less and less willingness to invest into the European Union for the future. Paul Mason, gradual erosion or something more dramatic? I fear that we're already beyond that. I mean, if we compare the European situation to, say, America, where I think Donald Trump is the most urgent, pressing and worrying phenomenon in terms of the breakup of a rules-based multilateral order, but Trump is for now reversible. What we've got in Europe are 27, 28 if you include the, the Brits, governments all responding to old nationalisms. Old nationalisms that I've seen in reporting, say, from Poland, come out of the box, revert to their old rhetoric, their old obsessions. That's quite hard to reverse if, as Joseph says there, you don't have a coherent story to tell. And my concern is that the moment for telling a coherent economic story kind of passed in 2015 when Germany decided to, you know, along with the European Central Bank and the IMF, to override the wishes of Greek democracy. So... I, I hope it can be saved, but radical action both this weekend, going forward into the October EU co. No, this is the year for radical thinking on the future of Europe. Claire Jones, the future of the EU without reform? Well, I'd agree with what Paul and with what Joseph has said about the idea of the status quo being impossible to maintain. You do need to see reform. If you don't have reform, it is going to feed into this populism that we are now seeing in several parts of the EU. 
where I disagree slightly is to say that I do think we have in Emmanuel Macron someone who is promoting an agenda for Eurozone economic reform, which a lot of economists would agree on and sign up to and think was a very healthy thing. Now, the issue is, is whether or not Macron will get what he wants. What came out of Messerberg last week, the agreement between him and Merkel, wasn't as strong as a lot of economists would have wanted to see in terms of substance. It sent a very important signal, but the substance was perhaps disappointing to people who've been following the process closely and who want to see quite radical reform. OK, we'll talk about all of that in more detail uh, in, in a little while. John Springford. I agree with the general gloom that has been on display so far. I would temper it a little in the sense that if we think about what a real crisis year for migration, for example, that was 2015, when over a million people crossed the Mediterranean. Um, The numbers now um, in the first half of 2018 are down to about 45,000. So in terms of it being a a real emergency, things have got a little bit better. And in terms of the euro, you know, we've seen decent growth thanks to um, the quantitative easing policies of the European Central Bank and the fact that austerity has ended. So why do I agree with, with the general pessimism or fear It's that for the first time, I think, within the Eurozone and within the EU, we've seen not a sort of big group of liberal pro-European politicians at the centre. You've seen that coalition fracture over time, partly because of poor governance of the Eurozone and other mistakes, so that you now end up with Germany and France cobbling together a compromise which isn't very impressive and which is under attack from the north. And then on migration, you have Angela Merkel under attack from the Central and Eastern Europeans and from Italy. So in that sense, politically, it's in in a very febrile state. Mm. You've set out very well the the divisions, the divisions provoked by migration Uh, Paul Mason, if you were to look then for solutions to those divisions, what are they? You're seeing the North and South divide and the East and West divide. Well, as a journalist, I spend a lot of time listening to discontent, worry and frankly racism about migration. So I'd like to inject the kind of a kind of let's understand it, a kind of Leibnizian kind of let's just understand it, neither laugh or cry. Look, when... Italian voters see African street sellers from end to end of the Ponte Vecchio in Florence. They don't ask, has migration fallen by 96%? It has. They know that you can't build a wall across the Mediterranean. And what in the fear in their mind and the fear that that Salvini and the Lega party in Italy are playing on, and further right than that, to be honest, is that for every one of those African street sellers, there are another 10 who want to come. I've met them, I've met them in Tangier, and I said to them, look, a lot of European people are racist, they don't like you, your life will be terrible. They say, well, come to Niger and see what... They've got nothing to lose, effectively. The young men and some young women do feel they've got nothing to lose. No, we as liberal, I am a social democrat, a left social democrat, liberal, left, progressive people have to have an answer to those fears. And my concern is that it's not so much that Europe doesn't have a, a, a migration policy, although it doesn't, it's that... For me, it's the whole economics of the Lisbon Treaty and Maastricht, which for sure have provided a kind of adequate growth to absorb two million recent refugees and migrants. But it doesn't provide the kind of economy that makes the voters of eastern Germany, Turin, the Padania region, Hungary, happy 
with their lives. We, in other words, the European model is not providing prosperity enough to provide consent for the and migration that's happening. Yusuf Yenning, some may look to Germany. They may blame Germany for that situation. And right now, for Angela Merkel, if there isn't a Europe-wide solution to the migration problem, her own survival is in jeopardy. It is a rather tense situation and policymakers must act even when they find themselves in an environment which is rather averse to leapfrogging on key issues. So it's it's all about a little compromises because the divisions and the confrontations are so deep. The unfortunate uh, fact for the European Union is that we don't have evidence of non-EU really. You know, when we talk about uh, how the Maastricht and Lisbon model have not provided enough prosperity, I wonder what sort of talks uh, we would have if we wouldn't have these treaties, if we wouldn't have the deepening of economic integration through the single market, if we wouldn't have had the euro. But given the, the, the sort of resistance years. those ideas are facing from the people across Europe, what does a leader like Angela Merkel do? Does she end up representing a rather old fashioned view of Europe, but one of open borders, these sort of liberal ideals, which actually voters appear to be rejecting? Yes, but I think she communicates that in a rather traditional format. Now, particularly in the German discourse, our debate about Europe is ritualized. We rarely communicate Europe as basically being a service provider to the member states, as helping the member states to survive on a rather high level of affluence and security and in a world that would otherwise not take our interest into account. And John Springford, when you look to the east, some of the newest members of the Union, if you think about Hungary, Poland, the Czech Republic and Slovakia, they've benefited from EU investment, but actually now, right now, want no part in sharing the migrant burden. Yeah, I think that's right. I agree with a lot of what Paul said just a few moments ago. And I think it's fairly well applied to Central and Eastern Europe, actually. I mean, it's certainly the case that the Visegrad Four, as they're known, have benefited hugely from integration with the European Union because it's provided them with a single market, loads of investment from Germany. The institutions that govern their economy are a lot better. And if you compare them to somewhere like Ukraine, they've had a much, much better time. The issue is that there's a fair amount of resentment in, in some places in Central Europe about the fact that a lot of their people, for example, who have migrated to Britain are treated as second-class citizens. They have accepted an awful lot of foreign investment so that they feel like a lot of their companies have been actually screwed by competition from Western companies. So there isn't necessarily that sense of... You know, the Afterwards. European Union has, has generated wealth for us. And this is generally the problem with the EU, which is that its gains and benefits are intangible. They're quite diffuse, whereas the costs are really, really noticeable. And it's something which politicians generally find quite hard to deal with in a crisis. Well, migration's opened up a Pandora's box of political difference beyond the practical issues of coping with new arrivals. Who'll take them? But this, in the end, is just another problem overlaying the unresolved issues that were thrown up by the crisis in the Eurozone. And most recently, you've seen, as Paul's already alluded to, the new Italian government uh, with different ideas, particularly big spending plans, which actually is then 
fueling anxiety about Rome's commitment to stay within the EU's fiscal rules, which call for balanced budgets or low budget deficits, and also its ability to finance that debt burden. We'll talk about solutions in the second half of the programme, but let's look at the problems. At its simplest, the Eurozone crisis is about governments unable to repay piles of debt, and then the efforts to stabilise their finances have involved bank bailouts and massive cuts in public spending. It's a rather crude synopsis, but I want to ask each of you to talk rather more eloquently, I hope, about what's been happening. Claire Jones, why would you say the Eurozone, the Euro European Union, needed a single currency? You've always had this idea going along back in time. It's predated the EU, actually, the idea of having a European currency. And the idea, I think, underlying it all was more political integration. It is a very politicised project. And it is a very unique step in the sense that for the first time you've removed the power to make money to produce currency from a state to an organisation such as the EU. So I think it really was a very political thing in nature where people felt as though to cement the European Union and the idea of a Europe that was moving closer together a currency was a very good way to do that. Of course, you've seen lots of benefits in terms of trade. It makes it a lot more easy for member states to trade with one another if you've got a single currency. It also has made the financing of government debts a lot cheaper for some of the the member states, and that's also been passed on to households around the region. Of course, we saw the flip side of that during the crisis, but before that, there was a sense in which this was a good idea, not only from the point of view of trade, but also from the point of view of reducing borrowing costs and providing more access. There is an obvious flaw in the Eurozone's design in the sense that the same system is producing 4% unemployment in Germany and 25% youth unemployment in Spain. What would be needed to reverse the latter is investment-led, borrowing-led growth, which is not allowed under the Maastricht Treaty, or enough of it is not allowed. I would go further in terms of the misdesign. Europe should be proud of being probably the most advanced welfare state in the world as a whole, even including the states that are not very welfareish. And yet its story, that at the heart of its story, is a concept of citizenship that is purely economic. And you can see it in the northern town that I come from in, in England. People can arrive from Lithuania or Poland and have all the benefits of citizenship merely through being workers, through participating in economics. America is one of the most marketized societies in the world, and yet it has a national story, we the people, embodied in its constitution, which every migrant to it buys into. You know, they will thump their chests, they will call themselves Muslim Americans or Palestinian Americans, Somali Americans. So you're and saying that in, in the European model, workers are simply a, a, an economic commodity. They are not treated The concept of citizenship is two-dimensional and we should really know how dangerous that is because we also gave birth to some of the primary thinking in the world about democracy. The demos, it is from the citizen that the democracy grows in Greek democratic theory, not the other way around. I see every day this inability of people to explain why do you come and have what I my father and my grandfather created for you and in some cases fought for in world wars why do you come on what basis I would like to be able to explain that and I think I can but I think the European Union and several states within it are not doing enough to explain what is the legitimacy both of internal migration 
under free movement and the migration from without. On so, what basis do people come and why should we accept them? Josef Janning, it's easy to talk about monetary policy and fiscal policy, the absence of fiscal policy, that there should be greater convergence. But actually, we're missing the fundamental issue, which is actually this is about people. Yes, it is about people, but it is also about the orders and the structures that people design for themselves or that political actors design for their societies. And that's where I have to disagree with Paul. It is not just an economic story. The euro is not just a political invention. It uh, came also into being after the end of the Bretton Woods system and the many years of floating of the US dollar with grave effects on European economies, which led to the European... um, monetary system, which was not the euro, but which was a currency um, basket where most currencies were firmly pegged to the Deutschmark and they would use interventions by their central banks in order to keep the defined parity between uh, countries. This was not done for the greater good of unifying Europe. This was done because it had macroeconomically tangible benefits for the participating countries. Do you think, Claire Jones, the constraints then that we face now are actually in a position to pull the EU in so many different directions that it could be its undoing? Nobody can leave the the, uh, the, the euro. We're at a point now where there needs to be a decision about whether or not you push for further integration or what you do in the event of of a country wanting to leave. Now, the difficulty that we have now is that the crisis has underlined these economic issues. There is this sense in which we've got a currency union, but we've got 19 different forms of money. We haven't got the economic integration that people thought we had. And it is very clear that The European Central Bank, which has provided most of the support for the recovery, can't keep on doing the heavy lifting. You do need more of the sort of things that Paul has talked about in terms of investment. And those sorts of plans have to come from politicians and there has to be more political leadership. Now, I think Europe does have the wherewithal to solve these problems, but the issue is whether or not there is the will. I think that's the real question going forward. Paul Mason, do you believe there's the will? No, I don't, actually, because um, uh, Jean-Claude Juncker started off, uh, you know, 18 months ago, this debate about the five options for Europe. And I was one of the number of people who said, look, what about option six? What about making Europe a high value, high wage, high social benefit economy? And for any economy that doesn't want to be part of it, they can go to the periphery. They can go to a, a second tier. Now, this is something that's been very quickly rejected by, let's not call them the, the Eurocrats, but there are a sort of interlocking network of policymakers and influencers. I would give serious thought to saying to Poland and Hungary, if you don't want the rule of law, if you don't like uh, you know, the Europe as it is, well, there's a kind of affiliate status you could have. And if you're constantly going to block, say, the proposals from the Greek government, who've bought into the idea of raising minimum wages, raising welfare benefits, if you block that, fine, let the people who want to go forward to a high welfare society do that and see what it feels like to be a buffer state between Europe and Russia. It's not so nice. We'll definitely talk about solutions a bit more in the next half hour. But Josef Janning, one last thought. Was the Eurozone, if it was a political project, was it a political project that was designed by France perhaps 
to, in a sense, say to Germany, you've got reunification, but this is going to tie you into this European project in a way that will stabilise Europe and that will ensure that Germany remains part of this project on France's terms. I believe you're right, actually. That was one of the drivers behind Mitterrand's push for moving towards monetary union faster than was originally planned uh, because he wanted to strengthen the ties that connect Germany with its EU partners simply because uh, he was uh, anticipating an inward-looking Germany that would be absorbed with the huge challenge of digesting the East in this process of rather speedy unification. Also, uh, in Germany, there was quite a debate about monetary union, and the reasoning there was that contrary to the traditional crowning theory by which um, uh, monetary integration should come last after all other elements have been integrated, the idea was, could this EMU not be a driver to uh, deeper political integration in a number of other areas. And we see up to this day that one of the core political expectations of the euro has not been met, and that is that the euro, by taking away the ability to depreciate your currency, would force governments to invest into governance reform, into modernization of their rules, of their administrations, of the whole implementation system. And I still believe it to this day, one of the largest unused resources for growth in Europe, particularly in the south of Europe, is the poor quality of governance. Governments have been very skillful to avoid these painful reforms and rather cutting here and there than uh, trying to invest into the troubles of moving towards maybe a more sustainable or more robust system. Because, you know, after all, if you think of it, if you want a high-wage, high-income, high-welfare economy and society, you have also have to have a high productivity in order to be able to hand out all of these benefits but, that we would like our citizens to enjoy. But very briefly, John Springford is a counterpoint to that view then. Those who might say, actually, the country that's benefited most ultimately from the euro is Germany. And actually, it's tried to run the euro in a way that's good for Germany, but not necessarily good for the other member states. I think it's certainly obviously the case that um, the Eurozone's biggest beneficiary has been Germany. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily see the running of the Eurozone by Germany as being a kind of deliberate, almost cynical strategy to benefit its own citizens. I, I, would, I would see the failed policies of the last seven or eight years more as being a kind of intellectual failure, actually. What is really apparent is that the financial crisis and then the euro crisis was down to the fact that there wasn't the ability to be able to use monetary policy to be able to reduce unemployment, to redistribute unemployment and to create growth. Um, why? Because we had a, a, debt, a debt crisis in some countries, but actually in many others, it was down to the banking sector making all sorts of bad bets, dragging down governments with them. And the most disappointing thing about the latest proposals between the French and the Germans and what's likely to come out of this week's summit is that there's going to be no concerted attempt to complete the separation, federalise the banks, make sure that the Eurozone as a whole stands behind them, supervises them, regulates them, take them out of the hands of governments. And that would do a huge amount to make the Eurozone a much more stable place. 
And just to remind you, you're listening to a podcast edition of The Real Story from the BBC World Service. This week, we're asking, can the EU stay together? Each week, we tackle a different topic and you can download the programme every Friday. I encourage you to subscribe so you won't miss an edition. And there are also many other BBC World Service podcasts to choose from. You could try the BBC Global News podcast, bringing you the very best of our BBC World Service news coverage from our correspondents across the world. And do please let me know what you think of this podcast from The Real Story or any ideas for topics you'd like us to look into. You can email us at therealstory at bbc.co.uk. But now let's get back to this edition of The Real Story with me, Rithullah Shah, looking at the future of the EU. And my guests, Claire Jones, the Frankfurt correspondent of the Financial Times, Josef Janning, head of the Berlin office of the European Council on Foreign Relations, and with me here in London, John Springford, deputy director of the Centre for European Reform, and Paul Mason, a journalist, filmmaker and author. Now, earlier in the programme, we talked about the political fallout from mass migration to Europe, and we began to discuss the issues in the Eurozone, Coming up, we'll talk about the leadership that's needed to resolve these problems, which could be existential for the Union. But first, I want to stay with the Eurozone and talk a little bit more about the kind of reform that's needed. Emmanuel Macron, the French president, is taking on the role of youthful visionary. He's got a plan which includes creating a budget to fund investment programmes in the 19 Eurozone member states, which could also provide financial support to countries that face recession. This has been accepted by Angela Merkel, albeit in a rather lukewarm way. Claire Jones, is this moving in the right direction, do you think? One one media organisation summed this agreement in Messeberg last week as being a win for Macron in terms of the signal and a win for Merkel in terms of the substance. What do I mean by that? It was a very important signal that this document sent to say that Germany has agreed that you need some sort of fiscal budget for the Eurozone to deal with economic shocks. The issue is, is that it just doesn't go as far as a lot of people would have liked. Is it remotely enough, John Springford? I don't think it is remotely enough. The budget that we're talking about is essentially a fudge, an extremely small piece of fudge, actually. It's about because, 10 billion euros. Because, yeah, I mean, it's tiny in proportion to the eurozone economy. So its ability to be able to stabilise the economy in a, or, or, you know, a particular country within the eurozone in a deep recession is extremely limited. And it's helpful that there is the acceptance that there ought to be a budget. But the problem is that Germany has also said there should be no transfers, which essentially I think means that, OK, if a country gets into trouble, we might accept that we would spend a little bit more in that country, but we would expect some mechanism to be able to get that money back later. And that combined with the, t- the small size of the budget means that it's not really going to be very important, I don't think. Paul Mason, you were in Greece at the height of the Eurozone crisis. Uh, well, there is this huge opposition to any idea of transferring money from the north mm. to the south. Isn't that really inevitable at some point? Well, it depends what form the money takes. I remember standing in Syntagma Square in Athens when the right wing of Greek society, the anti-series of people, were demonstrating and they were carrying placards saying, yes to Juncker's 350 billion Marshall Plan for Europe. I thought, well, that's good. Where is it? Five years on, uh, nearly, it's not, it, it didn't exist. But there's more than just Marshall Plans. There's more than just borrowing. Although I do think the Eurozone should become, if necessarily, smaller 
fiscal transfer union. That is, the taxpayer of a person in Dusseldorf can pay for a project in Valencia. Okay, that's one thing. But the key is, I'm a big advocate of monetary policy, full stop. Quantitative easing was done years too late, and even now is not allowed to directly benefit. And, like and just to explain, quantitative easing is where central banks brought up huge amounts of debt. That... And, 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 and the European Central Bank is the last one in the game still expanding its balance sheet on a massive scale compared mm-hmm. to the European economy. That is what's revived Europe. But other central banks do what it cannot, and they effectively monetize the debt of their country. Even the British Central Bank, the Bank of England, has monetized part of the debt. What that means is that you print money, you buy the debt of your own governments, in this case, Eurozone, and you surreptitiously write bits of it off. I would like to see the Eurozone do that, but that is going to send the German political establishment and large parts of the German people apoplectic, I'm afraid. And we are up here against not just politicians, but large numbers of voters' view of what is possible with a single currency will have to change for it to be revived and survived. Josef Janning, there's a fundamental cultural and political difference there, isn't there? Yes, it is. Uh, I think in the in the German view, you would need a full-fledged political federation if you wanted to do that. The Bank of England, the um, the Japanese Central Bank, the U.S. Fed, they can do these things because they are the central bank of a fully integrated system, a unitary state. That is not what the EU is, and that is not what many of the citizens of Europe and the governments of these citizens want this Europe to be. So I think the hands are tight. In the German context, I think there is no principal opposition against budgets which have a transfer effect. But if you put the label transfer on it, that is politically so divisive that nobody wants to do it. So I don't see the German government refusing transfers. I see them hesitant to uh, underwrite big spending plans. But there is principal agreement uh, now uh, from the German government that there will be a Eurozone budget. And that Eurozone budget will not shrink over time, but it will grow. There will be additional fiscal facilities, a Schäuble idea, the previous finance minister, providing money to support structural reforms in member states. There will be banking union. There is agreement uh, now in the German coalition government that banking union and a full capital market union is the way to go. The only thing that keeps the Germans from saying, let's do it right now, is that they would like to see some of the risks being uh, built down that exist in a number of banks in member states, notably in the south of Europe, particularly in Italy. Claire Jones, does any of that strike you as enough? Is banking union really important? I think Paul's right in the sense that quantitative easing came far too late in the Eurozone. It came a lot longer after the US or the UK. But I'd be careful about placing too much pressure on the European Central Bank, given that the limits it faces in terms of the political economy here. You've had court case after court case against the ECB in Germany. They've gone to the European Court of Justice about such policies like QE and this other Mm. OMT programme where they said they would buy bonds in potentially unlimited but it, isn't, it, isn't that the nub of the problem, the fact that you have this deep-rooted opposition in Germany to any of these ideas? Well, exactly. I think, I think it is. And I just I disagree with Joseph that, the, that this trajectory, well, there is a trajectory there, but it's far too slow. And it's difficult to see exactly what 
Germany wants in terms of risk reduction because you have seen a lot of risk reduced. The amount of non-performing loans that banks have in Europe has gone down and down and down. And you've had massive adjustments in terms of like the current account positions and the budget positions in a lot of the periphery states. And that's been a very, very painful adjustment process for people there. That should be acknowledged and there should be a bit more of a willingness. Is is this the From extent- Berlin to to take on a little bit more risk. Yes, if you're having incremental change, it's just not going to be enough. Is is the German kind of aversion to draw a dramatic change of direction actually what could pose the threat to the Eurozone and, and the EU as it exists now? The uh, reluctance is mostly political. I don't contest what Claire said about risk reduction. But when German policymakers think about a backstopping mechanism, which they want to include now into a reformed uh, European stability mechanism, the ESM, they think of, uh, of the probability of that being used within the first five or ten years of its coming into existence. Uh, they are horrified you know, because uh, they don't know how they could win the public debate if they do this. So the this stepwise, reluctant, uh, cautious approach that you see coming out of Germany is due to that resistance that they feel. And mind you, uh, the Germans are not the most orthodox in this. You know, before Meseberg, eight finance ministers, mostly from the north, uh, including uh, the Baltics, including Ireland and the Netherlands, they wrote a letter an open letter to uh, the German government pressing them to remain as orthodox as they want them to be and not give in to the temptations and the siren sounds of uh, Emmanuel Macron. And John Springford, that is a problem, isn't it? You've got a country like Ireland that there's no way they'd want to see tax convergence, for instance, at the moment, given that their corporation tax levels are so much lower than the rest of the EU. And actually, at the other side of of the equation, you've got uh, in the East countries that aren't even part of the Eurozone, but would be very concern to see much more integration. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, just in terms of the new Hanseatic League, as it's called, which Joseph described, I mean, the problem here is that we're ending up with political fracture within the Eurozone, so that, you know, at the very beginning, at least you had kind of moderate governments altogether who at least wanted the Eurozone to continue and there was enough political will. But by not acting decisively to stand behind the system and to strengthen it, then you're taking huge amounts of risk. The so-called can-kicking strategy just means that when the next recession comes around, you have lots and lots of potentially quite populist voices around the table who will be much more difficult partners when it comes to trying to resolve a crisis. And that's the risk that I see. Paul Mason, let's imagine that next recession. How big would the safety net need to be to save an economy like Italy's? I don't think we should be worried too much about the next recession, although it's quite... Uh, if, if, if all we have is a recession, that's that's you can deal with that with monetary and fiscal expansion because, of course, the Maastricht rules allow fiscal stabilisers, that is, you know, some increased benefit payments, writing off the cost of a new car, that's allowed. The, the first thing that I'm worried about is really that none of this takes place in a vacuum. We've now got what we saw from the Quebec G7, the beginnings of the breakup of the multilateral rules-based global order. We have a US federal government that would be quite happy, I think, to play the same game that the USA played in the early 1930s. We all remember that the European system broke up in the 1930s because these age-old rivalries were stimulated. But what stimulated it was the United States actually 
saying to the British and the French, you will not impose debt repayments on Germany, war reparations. USA basically broke, I would argue, in the early 30s, the post-war European order. And Donald Trump, you know, it's not a kind of next year issue. Donald Trump is going to turn up. Of course, this is geopolitics. He's going to do, he's going to have meetings in, in Europe and then fly to Moscow and meet Vladimir Putin. And he's quite capable of saying, you know what, I prefer Putin. I prefer Putin to this warring group of low-growth, you know, liberal democracies that can't manage their own affairs. That's my worry, that it's the external pressure on Europe. We see it in the Balkan region with China. We, we see it in the Greek situation, China buying up large assets. So we, we don't seem to have a story in Europe that holds this project together in the face of external pressure. So, Josef Union, we can talk about banking unions and, and whether there's enough money put into a, a stabilising fund or whatever, but actually the winds blowing around the world are, are very ill winds for the European Union as a project. They are indeed. And, and I think... In, in this, I absolutely support Paul's view. In this type of environment, uh, Europe needs more resilience, more strength, uh, more unity to be able to defend its own interest. The big question is, how do you do this in this scenario of fragmentation, uh, of diverging interest and of unwillingness uh, to engage? They, as we've described earlier, you know, when, when in, uh, France and Germany agree on something in, in a union of 27 or 28, that doesn't mean that things are moving because they need partner. And partnerships are in uh, um, uh, high demand now, and, but it's not ready, readily available. Most member states at this point prefer to hold back, and they even hold back on the idea of equipping Europe with a more robust international standing because they are afraid it will be uh, German, uh, Franco-German hegemony under a different name. And John Springford, if, if you uh, take that view and actually throw in the authoritarian governments that are appearing on the fringes of Europe in Hungary, in Poland, is there, in a sense, a moment, and throw in Brexit perhaps into that mix as well, to refashion Europe and actually think about who's, who's in and who's out? I think Paul Mason alluded to that earlier. I don't agree with that idea. I was asked by somebody to make a bet recently, which I gladly took on, that I think that there will be 27 members of the European Union in 2025 and there will be 19 members of the Eurozone in 2025. Um, but could it be a different Eurozone? The, could their membership be rather different? The, the question is whether the next crisis, and Paul's right, it might just a normal recession might be fine, but the next crisis forces integration in the Eurozone. And then I think that the economics will determine whether the Eurozone becomes a more integrated core and we just end up with a kind of single market in Schengen Union across the rest of Europe. Claire Jones? Well, I'm quite concerned actually about about Trump's strategy and in terms of trying to, to split Europe. I think if you, if you look at some of the tweets he's been putting out, he's very, he's really focused on attacking Germany and on and attacking Merkel. And my fear is that that could play into the hands of, of, of some of these forces that we've seen in the Visegrad countries and we've seen in places like Italy. So I do have a concern about how that, that will play out. I think the big issue is that I think the political leadership that we have now is a lot less strong than we thought it would be when Emmanuel Macron came to the French presidency. I mean, I remember being at a central bank conference in Sintra 
days after he, he won the race against Marine Le Pen. And there was this sense of optimism that there's this young guy, he wants to reform. And the assumption was that Merkel would do very well in those um, autumn elections, or at least if she didn't do well, that the SPD led by Martin Schulz, who was very pro-European integration, would do well. And that we'd be in a position where you know, Merkel would be thinking about a legacy and would push for more European integration or we'd have someone like Schultz, who was very much behind, you know, more economic and monetary union, combining with Macron and really having a political vision for the project. I think if you'd had that scenario actually play out and you hadn't been in the position where we are today, where the leadership, especially in Germany, looks a lot weaker than people might have hoped a year, a year or so ago, the attacks from places like, you know, the, these Hanseatic nations wouldn't have carried the weight and been as destructive as, as they now are. Paul Mason. Well, here's the problem, though. I mean, we're, I think those of us around the table and in, in the discussion here are, are, are all, you know, despite our probably political differences, coming from the point of view of we want to save the project. You've got a very strong political leadership, surprisingly strong in Italy, given it's just a, a minority coalition, in the shape of Salvini and Di Maio, who I think are exhibiting a vision. And their vision is to go back to basically... Core pre- principles. Well, no, pre-Maastricht. Pre-Maastricht. It pains me that the left, uh, I'm from the left, didn't argue this strongly enough. There is a pre-Mastic vision of Europe. And I'd also have to say that the Polish government, the law and justice government, shouldn't be lumped in with sort of the authoritarian Viktor Orban government of uh, Fidesz in Hungary in this sense. Orban buys the idea of what I call neoliberalism, free market economics, the basic principles of, of, of Lisbon and Maastricht. I think law and justice are much less authoritarian, although they have their problems with rule of law, but they have actually broken from the economic model. They are paying people to have children. They are paying the equivalent of €100 Euros a month per child. It's transforming civil society. It's, you could argue, cynically buying votes, but people are quite happy with it. Their ratings are sky high. And we can't sit here in the core of Europe and say, well, you know, it's the periphery. This might be the new Europe. Well, might it be the new Europe? But then a new Europe that divides into a core that perhaps has an older, let's call it a more neoliberal view of of how the economy should run and a a periphery Europe, and perhaps it's not the periphery, that, that does things rather differently. Of course, we're sitting here in the UnitedIngdom, which is on the point of breaking. Uh, But my big problem is that the kind of banana we used to call it, you know, from from Turin up to to Amsterdam, and it used to stretch all the way to Glasgow as well, that the populations of developed Western Europe, industrialised, modernised Europe, still don't get it. They still think that the whole thing can be saved without radical action. Was it Brecht who said, you know, let's, the, the government should dissolve the population? I, I don't want to do that, but I, you can almost feel within the commission people thinking, we need to move faster than our own electorates are prepared to go. But it, but it was John Monet that said, I've always thought that Europe would be built through crises. And you could argue that this is a moment of crisis. Migration is dividing Europe. Brexit is going to change Europe, whether Europe likes it or not. Isn't there an opportunity in all of that, John Springford? I think the difference between now and then when Jean Monnet said those words is that there are 27 member states and there were six. And it's easier to have a kind of club of wise old men, because it was men back then, who all work together for a common vision. There weren't such democratic constraints in terms of the media and scrutiny that, that there are now. And there wasn't the same degree of populists who are much better at using 
tools of communication or have proved to be in the last decade than, than Liberals. I'm not sure that actually radical action is possible or, or even something that we would want because what we really need is some steps which are kind of under the radar to try and shore up the currency and make it stronger. That's why I thought the banking union would be the way to do it, because who understands, you know, all of the endless acronyms that underlie it. And then the the other the other big question is just what to do about Italy. And my suspicion is that there will be some sort of compromise about migration. It's clearly the thing which Di Maio and Salvini are using to try and beat the Brussels elite with. And my suspicion is that they'll bend and compromise because Italy is just too important a country for the European Union. Do you think that that's a vision you can imagine, Joseph Yanning, where in a sense there's a compromise made for Italy? Yes, there needs to be a compromise made for Italy, but a compromise that also Italy has to make. Because uh, without a solution, without agreement, without a common approach to this migration policy and economic policy issue, Italy loses. Italy has nothing to win from a confrontation strategy. They have to win from a cooperation strategy. And this is something that uh, both uh, Salvini and and, uh, Conte uh, will have to understand and then put into practice. Now, I also think that, that you know, we should not walk into the uh, trap of, of those uh, uh, misleading labels. You know, when the Italians uh, aim for a pre-Maastricht Europe, uh, in my view, that is pure nostalgia. Uh, but it's nostalgia that's going down very well with their Well, yes, but they, it, it can't be brought back. That's gone. And uh, it, it is not coming back. The, these uh, era where the north of Italy uh, at times was producing a higher GDP than the UK uh, is gone because the Italians have not understood that the world all around has changed. And it's not because of Brussels policy that they are in trouble, but it's because they have not been uh, adjusting enough. The same token, um, I think it is totally uh, misleading to believe that uh, uh, France and Germany are neoliberal or Benelux countries are neoliberal or Scandinavia is leo- neoliberal. These are all countries with a highly developed welfare state that probably most Brits can only dream of uh, that has nothing to do with with this neoliberal uh, etiquette that is often um, put on Macron or on Merkel uh, or on the Finns when, when it comes to Eurozone politics. Well, look, we can argue over the terminology of neoliberal. Uh, it's built into the heart of, of German post-war policy. You know, market first, as little state as possible. No, that, that's, no. That, it's a that's, social, social equality first well, that's, in Germany. What, what we need in Europe concretely is state aid, nationalisation, high welfare, high wages, end offshoring to low-wage countries. That's what we need. But unfortunately, there's no will for that, not even Macron. That's my left critique of, of the Eurozone, of the, of the, of the centre's policy, is that it can't move fast enough to an aggressive, radical, neo-Keynesian expansion policy, not just because of the Eurozone, because, as we heard there, and you, sir, you know, your beliefs and mine are different, but it just doesn't believe in doing things that way. Josef Janning, the alternative <laughs> political vision. The alternative vision... Uh, is uh, socially uh, sensitive, a caring welfare state, but built on a competitive economic model. I don't see that nationalization of industry or infrastructure or financial sector is a solution to success. If that was one, uh, these successes uh, should have occurred much earlier because we have been uh, through those phases. I don't think that we can successfully live in a globalized world by closing ourselves off 
from the trends, from the from the shifts and power trends that are going on there. We have to be able to. But is the difficulty uh, for the EU that actually, if you have competition between nation states, that pulls the EU apart? Not necessarily. Look at the United States. There's fierce competition between various regions of the United States, and it doesn't pull it apart. You may argue, how can you do this in Europe without having a a federal state with a strong national narrative? How can you do this with this kind of technocratic, uh, bureaucratic governance that Brussels is? That's a key question. I want to wrap up this discussion by thinking about what the EU might look like in 10 years' time. Claire Jones. I think it's an issue of wherewithal and will. I think there is the wherewithal to move forward. And if you look at the the other parts of the world, I do think Europe has actually a lot of things going for it. And if there can actually be more economic and monetary union, I think that would be a good thing. And I'd like to think that in 10 years time, we will be in a position where there is more banking union, where there is more of a kind of like central fiscal authority. However, you know, you do have to question the will. And in terms of this discussion, in terms of reading the papers, it does leave me a little bit gloomy in the sense of thinking, is this what people want? Do people want more integration? So, you know, let's see, hopefully in 10 years time, we'll be, we will have made some progress, but it's difficult to say. I mean, I'd say one thing that does stand in, in the Eurozone's favour is that a lot of people did start to write it off in 2012 and we did see some measures taken. We did see Mario Draghi say he'd do whatever it takes and that really helped to stabilise markets. So I wouldn't discount it totally and wouldn't be perhaps quite so pessimistic as some have been during this discussion that jo- it is going to all fall apart. John Springford, you seem to think that the numbers will stay the same, but uh, what's your vision for it in 10 years' time? I don't think anybody's going to join the EU and I don't think anyone's going to leave in the same for the euro. We're entering a bit of a period of eurosclerosis now where it's difficult to make big changes because everybody's at each other's throats. But I think that there's enough glue. The single market is a, is a big enough glue and um, the eurozone, leaving the euro is just is just too difficult for a member state to contemplate. And so I think there's enough glue to keep the show on the roads. And so I expect we're not going to see an EU or eurozone that's massively different to now, but it will still hang together. Josef Janning, can you, you give us a more positive vision perhaps than that? Well, I see in 10 years' time a European Union of the current membership, current state of integration, but uh, with layers of deeper integration, functional cores around three issues, money, migration and military. Paul Mason staggers on with a little bit more convergence, perhaps. Like Antonio Gramsci, I prefer optimism of the will and pessimism of the intellect. Optimism of the will is that the young people of Europe who do think in a global and cosmopolitan way find the leadership and the energy to start arguing back. The pessimism of the intellect is not that Europe is incapable of doing that. It's just that we've got two highly successful neo-authoritarian global superpowers emerging. You've got the America first of Trump, And you've got Xi Jinping's globally orientated command economy. And against that, what can Europe bring to that new game? 
Plenty to think about there. Thank you very much to all our guests. That's it for this week on The Real Story. Thank you to Claire Jones and Josef Janning in Germany and with me in London, John Springford and Paul Mason. If you'd like to listen to the programme again or any other from the archive, you can listen back online by searching for BBC The Real Story. And if you like this week's programme, make sure you never miss another edition. Subscribe to our podcast and do email us with your thoughts on the programme, therealstory at bbc.co.uk. From me and the whole team, that's The Real Story story for this week. Thank you for listening.